I will say that we are skipping verses 4 and verse 7 um, for the same reason that you would want to skip verse 4 and verse 7. They are just filled with Hebrew names that are simply unpronounceable. And I studied Hebrew for years and years and years. So hear the word of the Lord uh, from Nehemiah chapter 8. All the people gathered together in the square before the water gate. The water gate, that gate, the walled city of Jerusalem, although it wasn't particularly well walled, the walls had been broken down. The one closest to the Gihon Spring, it's where water would come in and out of Jerusalem or into Jerusalem from outside. They told the scribe Ezra to bring the book of the law of Moses. This is one of the early places where we see that the book of the law of Moses is identifiable. So Ezra comes in bringing perhaps the Torah for the first time mentioned as the Torah, Genesis through Deuteronomy. He brings it. He has it in his hand. The word that the Lord had given to Israel. Accordingly, the priest Ezra brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could hear with understanding. And this was the first day of the seventh month. Now, the first day of the seventh month is not just an ordinary day. The first day of the seventh month is a feast day. It is the Feast of Trumpets. So it was already an important day on the calendar, and it happened to be the day when... Ezra was reading the word of the Lord. He read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday. And you all complain about my sermon length. In the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. There were a bunch of people standing next to him. We skipped verse 4. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people on a platform, and when he opened it, all the people stood up. And then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And then they bowed their heads, and they worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So they read from the book, from the law of God with interpretation. They gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and the scribe, and all the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. And then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions of them for those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, we are grateful for your word, and we are grateful for Ezra, for Nehemiah, for the sages and scribes, for the prophets, the priests, for the people who listened. Give us ears to listen as we hear your word. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. 
as we talk today about the joy of the Lord, it's an interesting and it's not a, a, a uh, it's not an ordinary kind of context to be talking about the joy of the Lord because what gets us there in verse 10 takes a long time to arrive at. And so, first of all, let's talk about the time. The time in which Ezra and Nehemiah are, are speaking. The time in which all of this takes place. This is a different world to us, the world of the Old Testament. There are cultures that we know nothing about and seem odd to us when we read about them. There are practices in religion and in civil life that seem a little strange to us. And there's this whole history that many of us don't get. And so, just for the sake of review, I want to talk for a minute about what's happened that's brought us to this point. 586. 586 was a pivotal, seminal time in the history of Israel. Some say 587, 586, give or take a year. I hate chronology. I don't care. It happened one of those two years. The exile from Jerusalem. The Babylonians were the huge, huge empire at the time, and they were gobbling up cities. They were gobbling up parts of, of other empires. The Babylonians were to be feared, and rightly so. They came into Jerusalem and they destroyed the temple. They burned it down. They took everything out of it. And they destroyed the wall around the city of Jerusalem. The wall, walled cities in the ancient world, were there for protection. Now, not everybody lived inside the city. But even those who lived outside the city, if they heard an army was coming, if a messenger came and said an army's coming, the whole city would fill up. Everybody from the city and its environments, they would, they would come in from, from all outside in the countryside and they would lock themselves inside the wall of the city and hope that the wall would hold and hope that they had enough provisions on the inside that they wouldn't run out and starve. They would hope. But the walls were their sense of protection. In 586, when the Babylonians came and knocked things over and burned things down, they also destroyed the walls of the city of Jerusalem. Now, in 538, we're in B.C., so we're... we're Going backwards here, in 538, 48 years later, people started returning. The Babylonian Empire got taken over by the Persians. Cyrus the Persian said, I am going to allow anybody the Babylonians had deported to go back to wherever it was they came from, and I'm even going to give some financing from the, from the treasury of the empire to, to rebuild some of the stuff that they had destroyed. And so, the invitation was issued in 538. But not everybody, not everybody came back. I mean, they've been gone for a long, long time. If you were 30 years old, you didn't have any direct connection to Jerusalem. If you were 42 years old, you were born in captivity. All of your friends were where you were. You may have gotten married to somebody, maybe a Jewish person who also was in captivity, or maybe one of the folks who was, who was nearby, and, and your whole life had been lived outside of Jerusalem. So even though in 538 the invitation to go home came to the people, not everybody went home. Nehemiah and his family, for example, they're not back in Jerusalem. So in 
458, Ezra brings people, if you want to go and look at who he brought, he lists the people that he brought to Jerusalem. And then a few years later, Nehemiah, the cupbearer to the king, the cupbearer, the one who makes sure that the king doesn't get assassinated by poisoning. It's an important role. And so Nehemiah is there to test the food and the drink of the king, and therefore of all of the people in Scripture, Nehemiah, like Daniel, also in exile, who didn't go home. Nehemiah had found himself in some pretty influential and important places, including coming and going from the king. Now, just because Nehemiah didn't go home doesn't mean he didn't have some interest in what was happening. Uh, we find out early in the book of, uh, of Nehemiah, one of my brothers, Hanani, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them about the Jews who survived, those who had escaped captivity, and about Jerusalem. Just because he didn't go home doesn't mean it wasn't important to him in the same way that when you call and talk to your sister or brother, when you call and talk to your, your second cousin that lives in the hometown where you grew up, you ask, what's going on? Nehemiah asked what was going on, and they replied, the survivors there in the province who escaped captivity are in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been destroyed by fire. That's not what Nehemiah wanted to hear. Now, if you go to Jerusalem today, you can tell this is a city that has been built and destroyed and rebuilt and redestroyed and built again and destroyed again over and over and over again. The city has got a complete wall around the old city now. You can walk on the top of it for a price. But all around on the outside are these piles of stone that just remind you that this is a place where destruction and devastation has happened. And it's happened again and again. And since the time of Nehemiah, there's this, this, this whole layer of destruction from the Byzantine Empire, from the Crusader periods. Uh, we, we've even got pieces of architecture with crosses on them that remind us that, that after the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, after the time of Jesus and, and Herod's temple, after that, it's over and over and over again. The Persian king Cyrus had conquered Babylon. Now, I put this Cyrus cylinder here just to remind us that we're not talking about ideas. We're talking about things that actually played out on the ground in and around Jerusalem and the ancient Near East. Things that happened as empires changed from one to another, as personalities wanted to be remembered forever, and Osiris wanted to be remembered forever. And so he, he sent out a number of these clay foundation cylinders. We have cuneiform writing on there, and this is, this is a... Uh, Brief synopsis of the writing. I'm great and I took over Babylon. And I want all the people that Babylon treated poorly to think highly of me. So I told them they could go back to all the places that the Babylonians had taken them from. They could go back and they could thrive back where their homes were. Well, time passed. Some of them responded immediately and they left. But then, 
80 years later, there's been some repair work that's happened on the temple. There's been some repair work that's been done in Jerusalem. But it's one thing to envision a completed project, and it's another thing to actually get it done. 80 years later, and it's up to these two characters, Ezra and Nehemiah, to take the next big step the next big step in this work. Now when you're reading the Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah, they're working together in the same time period. They're often working side by side. These two books, Ezra and Nehemiah, go together in time. They go together in subject matter. And they describe the important work that these two men did together after the Jews returned from exile. And they have different roles. Ezra is involved in spiritual renewal. He is the scholar. He is the scribe. He is the one who knows the book and has the book of the law. And then there's Nehemiah, the governor. Nehemiah has gone from being the cupbearer to the king, a very trusted position, to being appointed governor. And he's got the king's ear when he needs it. And so if there are those who are harassing them, the workers, it's, it's Nehemiah's connections that somehow make a difference. But even though Ezra has his own book, we have Nehemiah, his contemporary, writing about him. All the people gathered together into the square before the water gate, and they told the scribe Ezra to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Accordingly, the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could hear with understanding. First day of the seventh month, he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And all the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. This is a large gathering of people. It's not just those who had returned. It's not just those who happened to live in Jerusalem inside the city. It was a gathering of all sorts of people. Maybe tens of thousands of people there from a platform in a place where the voice would echo and be heard. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing up on a platform in front of all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. This is not a foreign concept to us. We in the church have a tradition of when God's self-disclosure in the gospel is read, we ask that folks stand. It's a sign of respect. It's a sign that what is being read is something that is monumentally important for the understanding and self-disclosure of God. And here, Ezra opening up the book of the law in the sight of all the people, and they stand, and they answer... Amen, amen, and they lift their hands. And then they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. They're standing before the Lord. They react 
to what is being said. It touches them to their hearts. And even if they're scrolling up their their phone, I see some of you all scrolling sometimes. And I know, don't worry about it if you are, because I know you're just looking up all the cross-references to my sermon. I understand you have several, uh, several different versions of the Bible open on your app, and you're just, you're just looking. I've sent you down a, a rabbit trail. But these people are, are listening attentively. They're responding. Amen. Amen. They, they respond with the, with the due reverence. They bow their faces to the ground. And Nehemiah, who was the governor... And Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. There's weeping. Why is there weeping? Well, it, it's because suddenly they are confronted with the words of the law. They are confronted with their identity as God's people, but they've been gone for so long that they've forgotten what that means. They've been away from Jerusalem for so long that they haven't kept the statutes, the commands of the Lord their God. And as they hear this relationship between themselves and God, They are cut to the heart. For they recognize that who they have become is not at all who they should be as the people of God. Now on Wednesday evenings, I'm doing wisdom literature and we find for everything there's a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. And I love what Ezra and Nehemiah say to the weeping people who are like, we're supposed to be the people of God, but we're not. We're supposed to live holy lives, but we're anything but holy. We're supposed to keep the calendar, and we're not keeping the calendar. They are cut to the heart, and they weep, But Ezra and Nehemiah said, God's at work. God's at work bringing you home. God's at work revealing himself and his will to you. God's at work. And that which is broken down is being restored. The temple, all the buildings around the temple, the wall, it's... Nehemiah's vision to rebuild this wall so that the Jewish people would have a place if they come under attack, a place of refuge. That which is broken down is being restored. And God's will, which had been forgotten, is is once again being proclaimed. And this conviction, you all know what conviction is. Suddenly, you realize you're not living the life God calls you to live. Suddenly, you realize that you have sinned and are in need of God's grace. You realize you've sinned, and the first time, oh, it just made you feel so bad, you were almost sick to your stomach. And then the second time, it was a little bit easier. You weren't quite as sick to your stomach. 
And after, after you've committed a particular sin five or six times, you go out for pizza because you're no longer sick to your stomach. The people realize that this conviction they feel, suddenly they realize we are not who God calls us to be. But Ezra and Nehemiah says, yes, you should know this, but also understand that this conviction leads to a declaration of joy. And he says to them, you who weep, you're God's people. Have a feast and don't just keep it to yourselves. Have a feast and when you do, take it to those who aren't here to share this moment. When you have a feast, send some to those for whom nothing has been prepared. For this day is holy to the Lord and do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Patty, how did the experiment go? <laughs> okay. Patty had a great experiment in, in, uh, the, the early, in the early service, which I'm going to try to replicate at home in a, in a different way. But the joy of the Lord being our strength is, is, is actually an amazing thing. We never know in the morning when we get up, what our life will be like. There are moments that change the world. There are moments that change communities. There are moments that change our families. And most of you, or many of you, remember when you could just arrive at the airport and run and get on an airplane. You could do that on September 11th, 2001, at 6 a.m., you better believe that September 11th, 2001, at 9 p.m., there was no running to get on an airplane. Things change in, in no time. And you may wake up one morning and, and the phone rings and, and what you thought your night was going to look like doesn't look that way anymore because forever a diagnosis for you or somebody you love forever alters the landscape of your life. It changes how we feel. But there's something more than happiness. C.S. Lewis says the joy and happiness, we often use those interchangeably. But someone who has experienced true joy would not exchange joy for all the happiness in the world. Here we have Ezra and Nehemiah. They're standing on rubble. The holy city has been destroyed. People have been invited back. A handful of them have come back, and those that have come back are scared. City-states nearby have their own leaders that are threatening to come in and undo all the work that they're doing. And here is Ezra the scribe standing out on a platform, and he's reading the law. And as he reads, the people are cut to their hearts and they weep. And Ezra and Nehemiah say, today is not a time for weeping. Today is a day for feasting. You've got God's vision. 
You've got God's Word. You have heard what the law of God means for you. You recognize what it means to be a member of the people of God. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And so today and tomorrow, when it's difficult, when it's hard, the joy of the Lord is your strength. And as they rebuild the city, as they do things that the Jerusalemites had wanted done for years and years and never seen happen, their strength is in the joy of the Lord. No matter what happens to us, the joy of the Lord can and will strengthen us so that even in those seasons when the world turns upside down or when our lives turn upside down, when we come recognizing that we need God and our obedience has not only not been total, but it has not been much, the good news is that as we move forward, as we stand on the rubble, The joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord is our strength. And in that strength, we may be more than conquerors. And we may know that nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Go into the world this week knowing that the joy of the Lord is your strength. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.